Right. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, I'm going to read from Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 to 25. I'm reading from the New International Version. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us pray. Father, be with us as we look to you to reveal to us what you have in store for our church. Grant us your presence, though we are connected in different ways, not physically present, but by your spirit. May you connect our hearts together by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. As we move into the first phase of a two-phase three heightened alert, we are gradually inching towards experiencing more freedom of movement that will bring much benefits. There have been concerns, especially in some industries and sectors, that will continue to be impacted and impaired by another week of limitation until 21st of June. Be that as it may, we yearn for full phase three in not too distant future. But even in total freedom, there's going to be continuing surveillance, tests, isolation, and treatment to keep those who are unwell treated safely and keep the rest of the uninfected public safe and secure. The so-called new normal will take over. And we must continue to support that to keep everyone safe. But there's always this tendency, isn't it? To give ourselves more freedom, more liberty, to do what we want rather than what we should. A life of freedom without any limitation is a rather dangerous type of freedom. It can become excessive and socially irresponsible, exemplified recently in some of our local news. Similarly and biblically, it is another way of saying that we do not use our freedom to satisfy ourselves at the expense of our neighbors, but to remind ourselves time and again to practice the love that models our love for others as we love God. And we can do that by listening to the Apostle Paul, which exhorts us to walk by the Spirit, and we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desire of the flesh are against the spirit, 
and the desire of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep us from doing the things we want to do. Galatians 5 verses 16 and 17. It seems very clear that Paul wants us to know that a life which focuses on freedom as an opportunity for the flesh has dire negative consequences. But serving one another through love, Paul says, that is living by the Spirit would have significant positive results. So Paul helps us to understand this life in two ways. Firstly, he sees a life of freedom without limits. And secondly, he sees a life of freedom with limits. Let's look at each of these in turn. Firstly, a life of freedom without limits, verses 19 to 21. In this section of Galatians 5, Paul tells us these sins are very obvious to humans. And we do not need the Bible to tell us what these vices are. Paul's intention is that we do not convert our freedom into an occasion for the flesh to flourish, but to rule our lives by love, which in itself is given and achieved by the Spirit of God. And in this list, there are 15 items, and they are not meant to be exhaustive, but it's only a representative of what more might be said. We know that evil occurs in innumerable ways, and only some examples are here listed. And there are a few ways to understand this list of vices, but I personally would just take one way to organize it into four different categories. First, we look at sexual sins, the sins of sensuality, like sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Sexual immorality means unlawful and immoral sexual relationships. This vice was very common in the days of Paul, but often uh, carried to excess. It was a lawless chaos. Uh, Paul lived in an age, in a world in which such sin was rampant. And into that world, Christianity brought men and women an almost miraculous power to live in purity. Secondly, Paul mentions about impurity. By this term, Paul meant that impurity has to do with sexual impurity or looseness in the moral sense of the word. And in that sense, moral impurity separates a person from God. Debauchery is another description of sexual sins, which is a love of sin so reckless, so careless, and so audacious that a person has ceased to care about what God and what other people think of their actions. The second category is that of religious sin. The first thing that Paul mentions is that of idolatry. In Paul's usage, uh, this means the worship of an image or uh, the God represented by the image. And also Paul includes elsewhere the eating food that had 
been offered to idols or with idolatrous association. Say, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And he also added somewhere else in Colossians that even being greedy and covetous are also considered idolatry. And here let me mention that the icon I used at the very start of my sermon is not idolatry. There are two reasons for it. First reason, I have the permission of Pastor Darren to use it. And secondly, uh, historically rather, uh, is that there was a time in the history of the church where icons or images uh, were considered uh, a very huge controversy. And that happens uh, seven to 800 years after the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the fear is very legitimate because at that time, those who opposed using image or icons to represent God argued that God was transcendent. God is spiritual and could not be depicted in art. So understandably so that Christians were fearful that Christians were praying before idols and that could actually mean uh, praying to an inanimate object. And they had uh, huge debates about that. But it was resolved amicably at the end, uh, about 843 uh, after the death of Christ, uh, the church affirmed the usefulness of image in favor of icon. And I will use the icon later on to explain how and why the icon was used at the start of my sermon. But let's carry on under the category of religious sins. Because besides idolatry, Paul mentions that of witchcraft. Witchcraft means uh, sorcery. And sorcery usually use drugs as a way to practice witchcraft. And you have probably heard, and I've certainly read, of some people who, who use drugs for an out-of-the-body experience. Those of you have read and probably heard of friends who take entertainment drugs, and essentially is to feel aesthetic, out-of-the-body experience, to feel very thrilled. And essentially, they want to feel in touch with transcendent, beyond the physical limitation through drug enhancement. But not only that, uh, in the Old Testament times, and even further back than that, uh, there is a ritual use of drugs in religion. And the practice is rather ancient. So for example, cannabis, which to you and I is a modern drug, but actually it is not a modern drug, as some of you may know. Uh, cannabis uh, historically has been used in centuries before the birth of Christ. Uh, alcohol uh, was another uh, element used in religious circles, uh, especially by the Greeks uh, for ritual purposes. So all this to Paul is very dangerous. If one move on besides sexual sins, religious sins, he moved to the third category, social sins. And here quickly and immediately you can sense the element of conflict with other people. So he mentioned a whole list of them, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, and envy. Hatred, as we all know, can be understood as enmity, uh, hostility, say uh, enmity between two persons or two groups. And so instead of love and friendship, we experience hatred. Discord is another description. 
and that could mean quarreling, uh, wrangling, or contention between people. Another element is that of jealousy. It's a very unfriendly feeling uh, and jealous or a desire to have for oneself what other people possess. Feats of rage is another description, which is really a reprehensible uh, anger of people. And it denotes an outburst of passion or anger. Then we have another description of selfish ambition. And that means clearly self-seeking, uh, self-devotion to one's own interests and agenda. And in fact, uh, we can almost be certain that selfishness is really the root of all sin because it is the antithesis, it's the very opposite of the all-inclusive virtue of love, which we'll look into in a few moments. Then we have dissension, means that we are looking at people who cause division in the life of the community. Faction has to do with differences of opinions and actions. Now we all know in society, we have diversity and we should respect and honor diversity, but diversity can become racism and can become uh, discrimination, can become segregation, uh, can become uh, stigmatization. And all this diversity becomes divisive and it becomes factious. Finally, Paul described one final uh, social sin, that of envy, which is again similar to the earlier explanation I gave on jealousy. Finally, the fourth category of sin that Paul refers to is that of drinking sins. And that's very obvious, uh, the danger of drink and driving, the danger of drunkenness and orgies. Uh, orgies is of course referring to uh, the aftermath or during drunkenness, where there will be bouts of continuous drinking and uh, reveling. Now, how does all this apply to us? I think I suggest we can make one or two observations. The first thing to notice about this list that Paul uh, listed for us is that in this list, 15 items, you can find some rather unexpected item. So for example, the list of uh, uh, vices does not include simply on carnal sins or sins that is very obvious. You can see with the human eyes. Uh, drunkenness, for example, is pretty obvious. You can see a person being drunk. Uh, they are very obvious and they're external. But the list also goes on to include things like hatred, strife, and jealousy, which actually are internal. They are inward in a person, within a person, and they are not seen, they are not obvious, they are not observable by people outside rather than yourself. So these vices, according to Paul, that some of these vices actually reside inside us, inside the self-centeredness, inside the egocentric behavior. Maybe not even behavior, but just the egocentric focus on oneself that underlines all these vices. So for that which separates us from God is our own idea of autonomy, meaning to say we want to live and think and do things apart from God and his word. 
believing that what we are today is what we make ourselves to be. And we ourselves alone have achieved what we have achieved. So with such uh, autonomous stance coming to expression, all sorts of egoistic ways can manifest itself. And those, uh, those vices I mentioned to you are uh, some of them. And they can serve no one else except the self. Another observation we can make, I think, is we should be careful not to label such behavior as, or thoughts for that matter, as necessarily sins. Why do I say that? I think we all experience as human beings sinful tendencies or propensity to do certain things. Not that we have done it, not that we have committed it, but we feel the urge towards certain uh, unacceptable behavior. We have not committed those behavior, it's just this power of temptation that pull us towards uh, such sins. And I would term such as struggles or challenges rather than necessarily labeling them as sins. So I think as pastors, as Christians, as parents, or just as a human being, I think we need to be aware that some of these struggles that we have are actually issues of human development. So for example, a, a person who is in the early 20s uh, will have much stronger sexual urges uh, than a person who is in, in their 90s. Because it's just the hormonal changes and the charges are so different. And so when we see a youngster struggling with such issues, we shouldn't be saying, oh, that's a sinful thing. That is a sin. We've got to be very careful with that uh, because we are labeling far too soon without understanding developmental issues that all humans face. And we have to respect that journey and to help that person go through uh, what they are going through and not to label them as sin or even you're very sinful. Uh, we should be very careful with that. So what follows from these vices, then Paul went on to describe the virtues of the spirit that is contrasted with the vices of the flesh. And these are termed this second section as a life of freedom with limits, verses 22 to 25. Now in the book of Galatians, Paul has already told them that they had received the Holy Spirit because they believe, not because they have achieved something or just because they have initiated a divine connection with God. It is not that. There is this spirit-filled life that encourages us a stronger connection with God. And the idea of growth in the spirit-directed life is exactly opposite of what I described the list of vices, the passions, the undisciplined way of life. But when we are guided by the spirit, the indwelling spirit within us, in our lives, then we will experience the work of the spirit and opposing the way of the flesh. And again, as the earlier list of vices, I take a particular way of organizing this list of virtues into three component parts. Firstly, our attitude to God. The first virtue in this list is love. And love is, is entirely concerned with the love of God as he expresses to us, to humankind and to the world. It is reflected through his own and it dominates 
all discussion of his love for us, his relationship with us. So our learning of God towards God and to God is foundational to all other horizontal relationships. Without God being at the very center of our life, our relationship with friends and neighbors and family members can be compromised. Another virtue that Paul described is that of joy. And again, joy is a highly esteemed uh, virtues of the Christian life. It's a joy given by God to us that help us to live beyond uh, life circumstances, which can, which can affect us, they can put us down, but the joy in the spirit encourages us to be connected with God. And because we are with God and God with us through Jesus Christ, and particularly in the indwelling of the spirit, we are able to transpose, transpose uh, our life into joy, into a higher key. And our joy is associated with being in the Holy Spirit. And the third connection we have with God is that of peace. Peace is our relationship with God, isn't it, in Christ? It means that you and I as believers receive something of the peace of God in our lives. And that peace, as we all know very well from Philippians, passes all understanding. Peace also protects and garrisons our hearts and our minds. The second category is that of attitude towards others. Fundamentally, that flows out from our attitude to God. Forbearance, or another word for it is patience, or another uh, King James word I remember as a young lad is long-suffering. And it is an attitude towards others. It means uh, patient endurance of wrong without anger or taking revenge. Another one is kindness. Being kind to one another is a virtue expressed and practiced by the people of God. Goodness is similar in meaning with kindness, but this word has more emphasis on goodness rather than kindness, but they are very close in meaning. And finally, the attitude to self, ourself. And that, I would say, faithfulness means personal integrity. The ability, God-given ability to be faithful, to say what you mean and mean what you say, to live your walk and walk your talk, in other words. So it means it is your personal response to yourself of trust regarding your own personal integrity before God. It's very critical that we are aware self-aware of our own attitude towards ourselves, not one standard for me, another standard for another person. If we issue a, a request or demand or expectation of another person, we have to be very sure that we ourselves are able to do that. We ourselves are able to fulfill that. Or we ourselves are able to be challenged by that. Uh, rather than living uh, a double life, or a life that has got double standards, or, or wear a couple of different hats, and that will not do. So it, it seems quite clear that Paul has this in mind, that our faithfulness to ourselves, the human virtue of integrity, is being produced in us by the faithful God through his spirit. Then we have gentleness, that means being considerate, being thoughtful uh, towards other people, uh, which is the opposite of a selfish, arrogant, 
or a self-assertive life. And finally, self-control. Uh, this clearly means a control of our appetite for drink, uh, for food, uh, you know, uh, uh, control of our uh, hilarity, um, and also self-restraint uh, when it comes to sexual matters or in allowing the craving of one's own lust to dominate our lives. And again, what does all this mean for us today? I think it means quite one or two things. First of all, you just uh, uh, realize that Paul actually didn't mention some of the things that we Christians assume uh, it's the natural thing to do. Paul, in fact, didn't mention anything about evangelism. He didn't mention anything about tithing or almsgiving. Not that not important. It's just that Paul didn't mention any of these in that list. He didn't even mention about care of the widows. He didn't mention about orphans, etc., etc. But what appears, interestingly, is that he mentioned such items as love, joy, peace, patience. They are inward qualities. They are not outward performances. It's very important that we, we, know, we know that because for the spirit of work to work in our lives, it works from inside out. Uh, behaving like a Christian perhaps may help, but behaving like a Christian is not sustained by the inward quality or the inner quality of the Christian. So the cultivation, if you like, discipleship, is exactly what it means, a cultivation of the inner quality of Christians. And what Paul talks about, the virtues of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit is precisely that. And it is that underlying orientation that gives birth to practice and to a changed lifestyle. The danger I see, as I observe, is that some churches, or some Christians, I will even say that, teach that the Spirit of God is about power, power to do ministry, power to speak in tongues, uh, powers to do many, many things. And, and they are right. They are absolutely right and they are absolutely correct. But what I'm worried about sometimes is that there is this danger of empowering the self. Because when you, when you feel powerful, when you feel that you are having the power of God for ministry, they can very easily slip into yourself. It is about yourself or myself. I feel powerful. And power actually corrupts a person. And you and I included, whether you're a pastor, you're a Christian, you're the bishop, you're the archbishop, it's, it's immaterial. Power does corrupt. And we don't have the inner quality to sustain the use of power. We run the very high risk of using power to abuse, using power to dominate, and using power to dominate and feed our self-ego. And we go back again to the list of vices. Because those vices are precisely that, the inward vices that actually corrupts a person. So without the inner cultivation of the virtues or the fruit of the spirit to sustain our ministry expression, we are in the risk of exposing ourselves to the danger of serving self rather than God. And so as I close, I also want to encourage us that in our commitment to Christ, through his Holy Spirit, we can begin 
to experience a new orientation towards life. An orientation that reflects the virtues of the spirit inwardly, a sense of selflessness, a deep sense of outgoing love of God. And because of that, we love others. It is not the denier of whatever. It is more a kind of a freedom we have in, in, in God, a freedom limited by our love for God so that we can be uh, free from the contaminating effects of egoism, of self-centeredness, or just with the ways of the world. What we can see over time as we spend time cultivating, we begin to see the emergence of the virtue of the spirit issuing out in our life and in a transformed lifestyle. So the fruit of the spirit becomes the replacement of our uninhibited lifestyle. And when we recognize that it is this life that we're supposed to demonstrate, may we allow the Holy Spirit to do the deepening work of his purifying grace to help us. Let me end as we go back to the icon which I shared with you earlier. And this icon has got some words written on it. You probably noticed that the background, those words are either Greek or Latin. But this 14th century uh, icon portrayed Jesus, which is at the very center of this picture. On the other side of it, you can see the English words, Jesus on one side and Christ on the other. And in, in the middle of the icon, you can see the, the word, the wisdom on one side and then of God on the other side. Now, this is very special for me. Now, icon is a way of trying to connect with God and what God is speaking to you uh, through this icon. So to me, what I saw is this beautiful central picture of Jesus right at the center of the picture and him put, pulling, if you like, Jesus and Christ together. Now, Jesus is a human name. Christ is actually a, a name of the Messiah, a divine name. And in Jesus, he pulls these two together. 100% man and 100% God, the fullness of God dwelling in him. And when Jesus left this earth, Jesus actually promises the baptism of the Holy Spirit for his church so that we can do far more than he does on earth. In other words, this symbol helps me to appreciate the fact that, yes, I am fully human, but at the same time, I got the Holy Spirit, the godliness of God, if you like, that are also infused in my life. And I must, as a Christian, live out my life in such a way that I'm fully human and fully God-centered. And that is, I think, it's a beautiful picture of the fusion of the Spirit of God and the humanness of humans. I think this is actually uh, very, very critical for us. And I think one or two more things about this icon is that Towards at the bottom of the icon, you'll see a gesture of blessing. And to me, that's also very special because as you and I have experienced life, we, we need forgiveness, don't we? Uh, we have tendencies and we committed some of those tendencies and, and it became sin. And some of us make very serious mistakes in our life and we regret those mistakes. We can't change the past. And some of the past will come and haunt us. And we find it very hard to even forgive ourselves. 
But the Bible that Jesus in this icon was holding is in fact from Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. And in fact, it, it reads in these two verses of Matthew 6. For if you forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your sins. And that to me is very critical. Because as we know, when we try to live our Christian life, we struggle. Our old self and the new self. And we make mistakes. We commit sins. And not only because we commit, we, we also commit sins against others. We hurt others. And all other people also hurt us. You know? And so sometimes it can be so painful that we stop forgiving other people. And we expect other people to forgive us. It doesn't go that, that, go that way. We have to be forgiving just as God forgives us. So if you remember the parable of the unforgiving servants, it's a case in point. You can find that in Matthew chapter 18. This unforgiving servant receives mercy and forgiveness from his master for a huge debt he owns. But he forgot to issue the same degree of mercy and forgiveness to another fellow servant who owns him much less. You and I owe much debt to our Father in heaven, much, much more than you and I can imagine. And we should be careful to issue and practice forgiveness and mercy to those who have hurt us. I'm not saying it's easy. I've been in the healthcare work for mental health care work for the last 10 years. It's very difficult to forgive. It's sometimes it's a long process to forgive, but forgive with must. Towards forgiveness, we must. Not immediately, some of the hurts are too deep. It takes time to receive healing from God. But we have to move in a direction towards forgiveness. And to me, this beautiful picture of Jesus holding the Bible saying, if you forgive, I will also forgive you. And with that fingers, with that right hand, he issued a gesture of blessing upon you and I and the church. So as we model ourselves after Jesus Christ, enabled by the Holy Spirit, we will struggle. We will even suffer as we replace and discipline our bodily passions under the control of the Holy Spirit. So as I summarize what I've said so far, is that Paul exhorts you and I to acknowledge and live our new relationship in Christ that involves dying to the flesh and its passions and desires and to live our lives in step with the Spirit, to acknowledge that our lifestyle that is pleasing to Him is that that will come to us by the Holy Spirit, so that we can live the life of Christ and to treat one another with the love of God through Jesus Christ, empowered by His Spirit. So may God help us as we learn to live by the Spirit a freedom that's limited by love and not a freedom without limits. Let us pray. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Break us, mold us, melt us, feel us. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. In your mercy, we pray. Amen.